Mission 2, San Jose Avenue. From our 901 Mission Street studios, you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Welcome to Total SF. No Heather Knight today. This is sort of a Total Vallejo episode. I'm speaking with Craig Brewer, a former Vallejo resident who directed Eddie Murphy's last two movies, Dolomite Is My Name, and Coming To, that's numeral to America, out on Amazon Prime Video today. I met Brewer back in 2005 when his film Hustle and Flow became a film festival hit and got a mainstream release. One of my all-time favorite interviews, I was driving a crappy Saturn at the time, and Brewer's car, he told me this, was a Subaru with one wheel like propped up on that spare tire. Um, but we're there at Four Seasons in Beverly Hills eating $20 burgers. Larry Flint in a gold wheelchair is like two tables away. And he told me this incredible story. It was about his dad really letting him watch movies he shouldn't have watched. This is back in the VCR era. And then his dad died shortly before Hustle and Flow. But his dad's advice really fueled him as a filmmaker. Um, go back in the Chronicle, dig up that story from 2005. Brewer's a Memphis resident now, but I like to catch up with him every few years, and we always talk about the Bay Area. He was an ACT kid, American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco. And in this episode, we talk about his first video store in Vallejo, shout out George's TV, renting any Murphy comedies when he was a teen. We talk about whether even 15 years into his Hollywood career, um, directing a lot of movies and big stars, if he ever stops nerding out having legends like James Earl Jones and John Amos on his set, they were both there for coming to America. And we get into Bay Area movie theaters. Empress Theater in Vallejo, For the Win, hope they're doing well in the pandemic, hope to get back there someday. I'm Peter Hartlob, Craig Brewer coming up. This is Total SF. Thank you very much. Craig Brewer, congratulations on coming to America and all the other cool stuff that you've done since we last spoke. Uh, good, good to see you. It's good to be here. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you're one of my fondest journalism memories because I remember it was about 16 years ago. The Chronicle flew me down to the Four Seasons, which they never did. I, I completely remember this. Yeah. And Larry Flint was two tables away. R.I.P. Larry Flint. Right. Right. And, and I just remember, like, there were two people that. I mean, we did not belong in the Four Seasons, but it was like they were bringing us food and stuff. And you told me your story and how you got into movies and about your dad. And it was just one of my favorite interviews ever. So it's, it's good to be back with you. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad I, I remember that. Do you remember he was in a gold wheelchair? <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. It was uh but uh, yeah, that was uh, it, it's, it's always good to talk to people from the Bay area and, and, and get to remember all those times back home. Yeah, yeah. Well, I wanted to start with just kind of your your movie, uh, you know, how, how you got your movie education. And uh, uh, we're around the same age. I think you might be a year or two younger, but it was, I remember v- video stores were coming up. There was a lot of good stuff coming out. And I just wanted to ask you kind of how you got 
excited about movies? Well, I think that what it was, was, um, let's see, I went to this school in Vallejo called Federal Terrace when mm-hmm. I was, um, when I was in the fourth grade and I became obsessed with Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I remember I would go into the, um, the, the library in the school and I would try to learn everything I could about the Ark of the Covenant. I was just, I was, I was dead set on being an archaeologist because you got to kiss girls like Marion and you got to kill Nazis. And, and, um, and, and then I, I told um, all of my friends that we were going to have a Raiders of the Lost Ark birthday party. It was my birthday party at the time. And I, I now look back and I can see my, my mom now realize like oh my god how are we going to do a how are we going to do a raiders of the lost ark uh birthday cake you know is she gonna have to build it out of gold frost and like the the ark of the covenant you know is it a well of souls birthday you know she's she wasn't a baker or anything but um all my friends came over and it was just a very simple pan cake you know like those Mm -hmm. you know a sheet cake where you just kind of put it down and she just covered it in blue frosting uh. and on top of it wrapped in saran wrap was the Raiders of the lost art script and storyboard book. Oh my God. And, and I'd never seen anything like that in my life. I, I, I didn't know that dialogue was written that way. I didn't know that they planned out the shots and my dad and I just went over the script and just went over all of the storyboards because when we would clean the house, he would play soundtracks all the time, but he would also play classical music and he would also play soul music. And so it really kind of like always blended in my head, this music script. And then I, I, I started getting involved in children's theater, but the biggest big bang, um, came when George's TV repair, mm-hmm. which I believe was off of Tennessee street in Vallejo um, near my house started to have one wall dedicated to video rentals. Oh yeah. And it became kind of like a film festival in my house where my dad who loved movies could then have free reign to watch old movies that he remembered, but also we got to see new things that he'd never seen. And that was, the, he would allow me to be with him during that time. And it really did lead to discussions about movies, you know, and I was just in, you know, grade school and then eventually junior high. And I, I do remember um, getting the, the making of Raiders of the Lost Ark one time um, from George's TV. And I got to see, Stephen, you know, worrying about making this movie. Uh, and then Thriller hit. Oh. And if you remember, Thriller had, uh, you know, obviously the, the music video, which was like a, a, an event, right? Sure. But there was a, a VHS that came out called The Making of Thriller. And my dad and I watched that together. And I would watch it repeatedly. But I remember my dad and I watching it. And who's directing it, but John Landis. And there's this part where Michael is talking about how he was a fan of John Landis's and he had seen all of John Landis's movies. And so I just started, we just started writing it down. And I remember my dad and I having this night where we watched the Blues Brothers together. And I think the most I've ever seen my father like 
dropped down laughing like I thought he was going to die was the nun sequence in the Blues Brothers where the nun is is beating Jake and Elwood, you know, with the, with her stick. Um, and, and, and then we watched American Werewolf in London and then we watched Kentucky Fried Movie. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, how old are you? How old are you? I'm, I mean, it must have been right before junior high. It must have been like, like probably fifth, fourth through sixth. I know that that was kind of the spectrum of years that I was actively renting movies and watching movies. I, I was telling my kids about like the lawlessness of the pre blockbuster era. Cause I could go and rent anything I wanted when I was like 11. I mean, no one, so there was no, no. And, and it's kind of like that for them now, I think, cause they have my Netflix password and I don't know what they're watching, but uh, yeah, I mean, well, it was, and, I think a really a great, those, great time. A lot to of those mom and pop stores had a lot of those mom and pop video stores had that back room where the adult movies were. I mean, you, yeah. were, just, you were just one, you know, push of a doorway away from just the most <laughs> crazy stuff that, uh, you know, uh, the, the, our young eyes could see, but yeah, I mean, I still remember like renting, um, uh, Saturn five <laughs> and humanoids of the deep, you know, I mean, crazy ass movies. I remember my granddad who was a famous ball player and, and he was also a famous personality, marvelous Marvin Throneberry. Uh, he was in all the light beer commercials. He was he was kind of like the bald guy at the end of the taste great <laughs> less filling gang. And he would go, I still don't know why they asked me to do this commercial. He came into town and he rented Gator Bait. And we watched Gator Bait together, which is a crazy uh movie, um uh exploitation, sex exploitation. Yeah. And I remember him turning to me going, like, don't let your mom and dad know that we're watching this movie. <laughs> this, this may not be for your eyes, but it's fun. So let's just keep watching it. So yeah, I know what you mean about that lawlessness. I mean, it's hard to think of it and compare it to the internet where you really could watch anything you wanted to, you yeah. know, but uh, back then it was much more taboo. Do you, do you remember your first Eddie Murphy movies? And, and we'll, we'll use this to segue into the movie you just directed, but um, was it Saturday night live first for you or was it, oh, it was Saturday renting night. those movies? No, it was Saturday night live. I mean, I, I try to explain to people, like what it was like to suddenly see Eddie Murphy on Saturday night live and, and recording all of the episodes and even trying to, um, you know, uh, you, you, you memorized every line of those, mm. of those skits that he did. And um, oddly enough, the experience that I remember, and I, t I brought this up to Eddie and he just couldn't believe it. One of the first solo movie experiences I have, where I went to a movie by myself with my buddies was to see best defense. Oh my God. Now, do you remember Moore. this movie with yeah. Dudley oh, yeah. Moore? Yeah. Looking back on it, it makes absolutely no sense because it's like, it's, it's two movies that take, it's, it's two different time periods and everything like that. But I think I went with a girl and I think I got to like hold her hand. <laughs> and I think we did one of those little like side kisses for the first time where it's like, you, you're not commi committing to kiss each other, but you're kissing each other. And, and, and I remember my cheeks getting red. Cause there's this one moment where like Eddie is having sex with a girl in the movie, but it's kind of funny. So everybody was laughing. So yeah. it was, it was, it, it, that's, that's oddly enough, my first cinematic moment with <laughs> Eddie Murphy uh, is on best defense, you know, but yeah, my dad and I, we saw, we saw Beverly Hills Cop together and we, you know, we, we were really big fans of trading places and, and, you know, that's when I 
course, like everybody else, fell in love with, you know, with Eddie and, you know, Dan Aykroyd was already in our sphere because of Blues Brothers and everything. And, yeah. Uh, did you, do you remember seeing Coming to America? You, you might have been in college by then. I was or, in high school. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. A- absolutely. Yeah. Well, it was another one of those things that my dad and I were going to see another John Landis, Eddie Murphy. Yeah. You know, and uh, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it was exactly what everybody is saying it was. It was hilarious, but it was touching. It was something that like my grandmother could get behind, you know. Yeah, and it was um, R-rated. So I, it was, and I'm sorry to cut you off, but it was, you know, there was really a musical element to it that, um, and, and an inspiring element. And, and his character is so sweet in it. And then well, it's R-rated, so it, it almost was a little bit of a, of a Well, that's what I take issue with with people on Twitter and the internet that are saying, like, what is this movie? You know, they've made this movie PG-13. Why didn't they make it rated R like the first movie? <laughs> and Eddie and I have had conversations about this while we were making the movie. The only reason that the first movie was rated R was the baiters um, and, you know, uh, excessive use of the F word, right? Yeah. That's really it. Otherwise, if you really look at all of the movies that Eddie was making during that era from like 48 hours coming to, uh, you know, 48 hours, Trading Places, Beverly Hills Cop, and then everything he was doing on Saturday Night Live, Eddie brought attitude to everything. Uh He was always kind of the, he was the trickster. He was the guy that was the, the agent of chaos. Not so with Coming to America. Coming to America was a fairy tale. It felt different. He had this innocence to him, this 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 really optimistic, open-minded naivete to everything American, where he even praised how we threw trash into the streets, mm-hmm. you know. And so one thing that Eddie and I had talked about was he 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 even warned me. He's like, you know, don't get all caught up in this in in think, you know, we had just made Dolomite as my name. You know, we mm-hmm. we are not. Uh, fearful of nudity or, <laughs> or, 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 or MFing throughout the whole movie. You know, we had just done two hours of it and, and gleefully so, yeah. but um, you know, he, he, he was the one that really said like, this is a special movie to me because it was different than, than everything that I was making because it's hopeful and it's like a fairy tale and he wanted it to, to remain that way. And so uh, I, I take issue with people thinking that somehow the movie is ruined because you know, we don't have those those very small elements that turned a very wholesome movie uh, into a rated R movie, especially because so many people over the years have watched Coming to America on TV. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, you're surprised at how many people that's how they saw Coming to America. Yeah. We'll be right back after this short break. I, I love all the music in this movie. Um, I love, uh, you know, just every music beat is perfect down to the little Bay Area reference. You got a little Humpty dance in there. I don't know. Thank I'm, you. I'm, I'm going to try you. to avoid spoilers. I'll just let people discover it for themselves. It looked like it was fun on the set. Um, I, I say like reunion vibe. It reminds me of like Godfather 3, and I'm not comparing your film to that, but I'm saying like there were, there were points of Godfather 3 where like that's the actress who played the same person who Sonny hooks up with and she's now Andy Garcia's mother. And it's like, there were actors and actresses in this movie I haven't seen in 30 years and they're all back for this movie. It felt like such a reunion. Was it fun on the set that way? 
Yeah, it was. It was. I mean, it, I, I, I have no uh, dirt that it was anything what people feel because it was like people that hadn't seen each other in a long time now getting together. They're not only getting together, but they're getting in outfits and being these characters again, you know? And um, I mean, I'll tell you like a moment that I'll never forget. Um, One of my favorite scenes in the movie is actually a scene that I I wrote between um, Cleo and Akeem. And it takes place in the back of, of McDowell's. And it's actually a rather touching scene. But it was the first time that Eddie and um, and uh, uh, John Amos John were Amos, working yeah. together. And so John Amos is sitting down and Eddie comes in and gives him a hug and shakes his hand. And John looks at Eddie and goes, Edward? And he nods like this. And, and I was like, wow who in the hell calls Eddie Murphy Edward and only be one man. And that's Jane, John Amos. You know what I mean? Like, and I was like, I wonder if he called him Edward back in the day. You know, I'm like, I'm still, I'm still, you know, fangirling in my own way <laughs> while, yeah. while I'm, I'm, I'm directing it at the same time. I have to be kind of authoritative, but at the same time, I'm also just giddy, you know? So there were, there were moments where, you know, I would tell my crew, we need to just wait like 10 minutes, let everybody get this out of their system. And then we'd get to work. You know? Yeah. You, you anticipated my next question, which is, you know, you're an experienced director. It's been a lot of years since that first time we met and Larry Flint was there, but um, do you still like, have a hard time keeping your cool when like, you know, James Earl Jones and Wesley Snipes are on your set, you know, and, and are you still that kid who grew up watching those movies uh, in Vallejo? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. It it never goes away. I think that, that you, um, you get a little bit more confident to walk into the room, extend your hand, shake their hand and say, I love your work. Um, I know your work. Uh, I've seen all of your movies. Uh, you're the kind of talent I want to work with. And then the best thing you could do is just be as honest with your vision and uh, hear their ideas and listen to them. Um, empathy is something that doesn't really get talked about with directing. Uh, I think that that's at least the way I direct. That's very important. I want to hear what's on people's minds. I need to hear if there. I, sometimes I need to see if there's a problem that I haven't been, I haven't heard articulated to me. Mm-hmm. You know, and ultimately my job is to make sure that they can be what they, what they want to be. But yeah, when I sat down with James Earl Jones, I, I, I couldn't help it. I was like, look, I know I could sit here and talk to you about Darth Vader and the and all this, but I just want to tell you about, uh, the monologue you have in John sales, mate one and what that, <sighs> you know, wow. and, and, and I remember the first time I saw mate one and, and to see a smile on his face where it's like, ah, people don't usually bring up Nate Wong. But it, and, and then a few stories come out of that, of, of me sharing that moment. And that to me is the great thing about, about cinema is not only is it with actors, but I remember on Black Snake Moan, I think it was on one of these, but I was say, I said, hey, let's do one of those ver- vertigo shots that they did in Jaws. You know, when, when Brody sees the shark eat the kid and then you push in on him and you zoom back at the same time and my crew starts laughing and I go, what, what? And they point to the dolly operator and they go, just talk to him. He did it. You know, <laughs> it's like, that's what making movies when you're, when you're a movie yeah. nerd, you finally get to make them. It is, you, you, you realize that there's stories in every direction that you want to just soak it up. 
And so, yeah, like me meeting with Wesley, I want to know about the audition for Major League. Uh, I want to know about every story he can tell me. The, the same goes for, I just spent two and a half hours on Friday talking to John Landis. And it was one of the best phone calls I've ever had in my life. Just hearing the stories, telling him what he meant to me, telling him what he meant to my father and me. And, 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 and knowing that, you know, he's just a guy on the phone with me right now, but boy, was he important <laughs> in me becoming who I am through his work. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a interesting artistic medium. It really is. I mean, it's like no other thing. I'll tell you, I, you, you mentioned Wesley Snipes and in this movie, he's uh, your, your last movie too. I now think of Wesley Snipes as a comedic actor and uh, <laughs> Leslie Jones made me laugh a lot in this movie. I think Wesley Snipes might've made me laugh the most. He's um, hilarious. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he has so much. He's a general. You can help me explain it. He, he's he's a general in the competing nation. Yes, he, uh, he, he, is, a, he is the. Well, what I love to tell people when people ask me what the movie's about, I go, "You remember when in the first movie, uh, Prince Akeem was supposed to marry this one girl, Imani, and and she would do whatever he said. She would jump on one leg and she would bark like dog. People go, yeah, okay. Well, her brother." <laughs> is pretty pissed that that never happened because their nations didn't get joined together. Um, like, like what you see on the crown and, 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 and game of Thrones, you know, where, where people, where, where your job as a Royal is to be married to somebody from a different nation. So basically trade routes can happen. And because Eddie went or Akeem went off to America to find true love, his nation did not uh, prosper and he's pissed. And now the chickens are coming home to roost, you know, and it's like, he's, he's saying, I'm going to, I'm going to attack. And, and, and when, when I met with, I, I, I called up Wesley because I basically always knew I was going to cast Wesley as that, as that role. Like there were, there were other ideas and other thoughts, but I just told Wesley, can you just hang tight? I'm just going to deliver this role for you because I think you and Eddie are, are comedy gold. And I, I can't believe that. You know, if you told me 10 years ago that you two would be like the new duo to watch, I, I just wouldn't <laughs> have believed it. But they they make so much sense together. They're two titans, you know, and they both are great in, in movies together. Um, but I told him, I go, I, I, I want you to be a general, but just know that I'm sprinkling a little Landis on this. And I want your soldiers to sometimes accentuate what you say with rhythmical stances and stomps and, and hollers. And he loved that. And so I think that he put a little bit of rhythmical, you know, movement and mojo in the way he marched that kind of informed his whole character. And he would shout out things and people would respond. And it's, it was, it, I, I like to just get out of that man's way and let him do his thing. <laughs> Yeah, it was a very public enemy. It was like half Flav, half Chuck D, and it oh, had no. security of the first world behind them. Nobody's going to get that reference. Uh, <laughs> I got it. <laughs> give me, give me a, give me a. We're going to wrap up soon, I know, but give me, give me an Empress Theater memory for you. Um, Baleo, I'll give you the best Empress. It's still there. Um, I hope they're doing well. I got to do a health check on them in the pandemic, but uh, still thriving. I have, I have two um, specific memories of the Empress. Um, the first one was going to a matinee of Lord of the Rings with a bunch of kids. And it, it you know, it start and, and, and is this I'm the not Bakshi? talking, I'm is not this talking the, Peter, I'm not talking Peter Jackson. This is the Ralph Bakshi. 
This is the animated one yeah. that, that also incorporated that technique where they would, they would basically kind of rotoscope over real actors, mm-hmm. but it had the Hobbit characters that, that they had Frodo and, 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 and Sam that looked much like the Hobbit character of that animated Hobbit that came mm-hmm. out. So, so all of my friends, we were young and we went to go see it and the movie goes on and it gets kind of bloody. You know, it, I mean, I, I specifically even have a memory of like people coming forward with a with a sword and hitting people and seeing seeing people like respond in slow motion animation with blood spraying out of their back. And I remember looking over at my friend's mother and she was kind of like, oh, I brought my kids to the wrong movie, but we just lapped it up. We, we loved it. OK, but the real big one. And I remember seeing like uh, remember that movie, was it called White Nights with uh, with. Oh yeah, with Bershnikov and Gregory Hines. Gregory Hines. Yeah. I remember you, being in the balcony. Save forever. Sorry. Just oh yeah. Little Lionel Richie but in there. <laughs> the the big Empress memory for me that really like changed, like truly did change my life, was my dad picked me up and he said, "We're going to see a movie." And I said, "Well, what's it called?" And he goes, "It's called Amadeus." And I said, "Well, what's it about?" He said, well, just know that I saw this play. My dad saw Amadeus with um, Ian McKellen as um, uh, Salieri. Mm-hmm. And, and, and this, was a, this was a Bay Area touring group that, that came into town. And, and, and Mark Hamill as Mozart. And he goes, yeah, Luke Skywalker played Mozart. And he go, I go, oh, cool. Is, is, is Luke Skywalker going to be in this movie? He goes, no. No, um, he's not going to be in it. And I was like, uh, dad, I don't know. I don't know about this. You know, why don't we go see something else? And he goes, no, I really want to see this. Let's, let's go to it. And it's funny because I was the same age as my daughter is right now. And now she, I, I get that same, uh, from my daughter when I say like, come on, it'll be fun. We'll watch this uh, movie called the Truman show. And you think like, Oh, the Truman show. Why wouldn't you like the Truman You'd be surprised if you got a 13 year old daughter. It's like, it might as well be, you know, from, it might as well be gone with the wind. You know? yeah, yeah. But, but I remember watching Amadeus and being completely blown away by it, by being completely immersed in this world of music. And I remember just having chills all over my body watching the moment when he's writing the Requiem Mass and Salieri is taking it down. I had never heard classical music broken down like that. And, and when years later I would be in rooms in Hollywood and I was trying to explain what I wanted to do with hustle and flow. And I was like, I know not everybody likes rap, but I didn't really like classical music, but there was something about watching Mozart and Salieri create this Requiem Mass where you just saw one line of the music being performed, then you saw another line of the music being performed, and then another one, then you heard it all together. You were invested in it because you watched it being created. That's the whoop that trick scene. It's the whoop that trick scene. And and you'd be surprised. So many people fought me on that. They're like, I don't quite. I even remember like one person saying, "Don't bring up the Amadeus thing in the room again." But it's just true, and and I think that's why it won the Academy Award. I think it'd be different if they were just watching, you know, rappers rap. But because they watched them struggle to make it, just like Mozart was struggling to make that 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 one piece, and, and I believe it's the the second movement of the of the Requiem Mass. 
that completely changed the way I viewed classical music. And, and, and really along with kind of like that John Landis music number, it was the first time that I really got the idea that like, I want to do movies that music is a part of, but you actually got to see the investment of, 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 of the effort of art. That's awesome. Empress theater. Empress theater. Well, congratulations. By the Uh, way, just as another person who knows that town. Yeah. Okay. So you know where the Empress theater is? Are we going to talk uh, pizza versus burrito or no? <laughs> oh, no, no. But I would like to know what that's about. But let me ask you this. That might be new. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Oh, I know. I know. Empress. I know where it is. Okay. I've been there. Yeah. There was a hardware store. It was like right around the corner of, of the Empress. And I have often wondered, I mean, when I saw Zodiac and I, I had read you know, Zodiac yeah. and, and, and one of the main guys that they were following that they believe. And even in, in Fincher's Zodiac, he was like, that's the guy. I, I've often wondered if that was the, I mean, I got, I was watching Zodiac and I got chills. Cause I was like, Oh my God, I wonder if it's that one hardware store that I would always go into. Cause it wasn't a big <laughs> hardware store. It's kind of like more of a mom and pop type of yeah, small yeah. hardware store. Anyway, next time you watch Zodiac, <laughs> I'm going to, I'm a journalist, Craig. I will find the answer to that question. We have a Zodiac beat. We have a reporter on it. I'm going to find you the answer to that question. And next time we speak, uh, I will have it for you. That's great. Because I I would always go to Blue Rock Springs and hang out there. So it was always like we always knew that the the killings happened around. (laughs) That's where my summer camps were. Well, Vallejo, known for E-40, the Zodiac killings, and Craig Brewer, uh, congratulations on your career and uh, congratulations on this movie. I really deeply enjoyed it. I can't wait to watch it with my family. We watched the oh, first good, one together. Good. And, and, it was uh, great talking to you again. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and good luck to you, man. You are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you to Craig Brewer. Total SF is a production of the Chronicle. Our music is The Tide Will Rise by the Sunset Shipwrecks off their album Community and Cable Car Bell Ringing by eight-time champion Byron Cobb. Support Total SF in the newsroom that creates it by treating yourself to a digital Chronicle edition at sfchronicle.com pod.